So this is the end, the final episode of the second series. Over the past three years, we've explored the ingredients and processes behind beer and brewing. We've looked to the past, to the environment around us, and in this last podcast, we're going to look to the future. I'm Ben Richards, and this is Growing Beer. Hello and welcome back for the sixth instalment of our latest journey and a bumper double length episode. I've had a little bit of a break since sorting out the brew last time, as despite the lockdowns lifting and society opening up, it's still been a challenging time for many across the industry. If you've come this far with me, then you'll know that by the end of last year, we had found out what it would take to brew using just the equipment and ingredients we can create ourselves or gather from the local environment. Working around a rather large COVID-shaped spanner, we spoke with historians, archaeologists, botanists and brewers to find out how Britain has brewed self-sufficient beer in the past and what we'd need to do to get by. As a fairly unexpected and unpleasant coincidence, this pretty much was the case, as we found ourselves locked down and isolated for much of the project due to the global pandemic. But we made it through, and after growing and foraging for the wild equivalents to our barley and hops, discovering the wonders of Kvike yeast, building the equipment we need from hand-gathered oak and strained soil, and finding out how you should and shouldn't brew using fire and hot stones, we had a perfectly drinkable, totally self-sufficient ale to show for it at the end. It wasn't at all as I expected, but it was good, and it proved it was possible. With that now done, it's time to look forward. When I started this series of the podcast, I was initially planning to attempt that challenge around self-sufficiency, do the brew and then finish up. But the past 18 months have placed an extra question in my mind. Having really got to know the ingredients and processes, seen how brewing has changed, and at the same time witnessed not just the impact of the pandemic, but also the early repercussions of not really tackling climate change, I wanted to add this one last episode to explore where we are now, how we shift to a more sustainable future, and what the future holds for our national drink and our pubs. To get things started, and, if I'm honest, to limit how much of me you have to hear in this double-length edition of Growing Beer, it was time to find out more and speak to an expert. So, earlier this summer, I caught up with somebody whose day-to-day life is immersed in the industry, and whose job is to support British beer and pubs. Emma McClarkin is the Chief Executive of the British Beer and Pub Association and I started by asking her to think back to before the pandemic and what the environment was like for pubs and breweries then. Well, it seems like quite a long time ago, uh, doesn't it, now with the pandemic um, going on for such a long time. That we've almost forgotten what it was like before. We actually had, whilst we had quite a thriving pub scene, we did still have a significant burden that was on the sector. You know, if you look at still things like business rates, that completely disproportionate, paying five times more versus our turnover, um, that was a pressure on us, of course. We always had the skill shortage, and particularly in our pubs, in our kitchens, um, but also sort of really standing our ground as a sector, I think, and sort of promoting the benefits of um, pub partnership business models or all the prowess of our British brewers. I think that there was um, a, a lot to be done, um, but making sure, I think, that we were modernising um, our sector. Those were the challenges that we had. And then, of course, many of those have been 
you know, really, really heightened throughout the pandemic. And coming on to the, the pandemic, is it possible to summarise what that impact has been across the industry? Well, it's been absolutely devastating for the sector, as we know, for our pubs and our brewers. You know, most people saw the bricks and mortar of the pubs close their doors, but they didn't see the brewers' taps being turned off and people losing, in some cases, some of our members, like 98% of their trade overnight. The switch um, to, to tra- off trade hasn't been easy for many. They didn't have the setup. Uh, their business model wasn't there for that. Um, and they've desperately tried all they can to survive. But we know that it's impacted businesses by two thirds um, of their of their uh, turnover last year. So it, it is an extraordinary year, um, a seismic, uh, catastrophic in many cases um, event for the sector, and one that it's going to be um, very difficult to recover from, but going to take a long time to recover from. And that's what we're trying to say to the government right now. And when you say it's going to take a long time. What are those next steps to try and try and move on from the past 15, 16, 18 months? Well, I think that what we um, did as, as the Beer and Pub Association was try to obviously get a grip with the pandemic and, and secure support for the sector. But I think that now as we move into the period of recovery more than ever, we need to recognise that we're all part of an ecosystem and that no one part of that can exist in isolation. So uh, the pub, without its brewers, without everybody in the supply chain, um, you know, we're all part of the same ecosystem and that recovery um, cannot be isolated in any one part. We have to find a way to, to aid in uh, the recovery of the whole of that ecosystem as we move forward. Of course, we've just had the delay um, of the restrictions being lifted. That, of course, will add in um, a longer delay, even than just the four weeks, because of that knock in confidence that it's had for the sector. And that will last for much longer, because we know after every announcement, there has been a dramatic cooling effect um, on the public. And that, you know, that confidence is something we were just beginning to build back up again. Um, and that recovery only really starts when the restrictions fall off. And that might be different also, depending on which part of the country you're in. We have different restrictions and timelines in Wales and in Scotland. So it is going to be quite difficult monitoring this uh, recovery process. And that's why the BBPA have put forward a recovery plan. Okay. The past two series of the podcast have explored the ingredients and the processes behind brewing and, and looking at how brewing has changed over thousands of years. Obviously, we've had a lot of change very quickly in the past two years. I was really interested in looking at what is yet to come. Um, and, and a big part of that um, is sustainability and, and carbon reduction. Where does the industry stand in the challenge that, that, that's, that it's facing in that respect? Well, I think the industry already has you know, a really excellent record when it comes to environmental savings and efficiencies. You know, we've been working on, on that in the area of energy, looking at water, looking at our emissions. And, um, and, and many uh, individuals and companies have already done a lot of work in this area um, to, cha- you know, to sort of um, get a head start on the significant challenge of net zero. But there, you know, for our brewers, there are going to be some real technological difficulties and challenges in decarbonizing, um, uh, particularly around heat processes. And so that's something that we're working with the uh, Zero Carbon Forum to create specific uh, net zero roadmaps uh, for our brewers. Um, But this is an opportunity for us as a sector to show that we are stepping up, but also to encourage the government to support us on this journey. Um, And hopefully uh, with some funding to help uh, develop the necessary technologies, for example, that we're gonna need in order 
to, to move forward on this journey um, and in a very practical way. But until that point, um, I think finding credible offsets options um, will be likely the best way to help brewers reach their net zero ambitions as we move forward. Um, but it will be interesting to see how we can get this collaboration between different companies who are at different um, stages of that, uh, that journey um, and helping decarbonize, as I say, that whole chain, the whole ecosystem um, to make sure that we're making a collective impact on them. And you mentioned then um, government support. What do you think will be the biggest driver of change across the various different aspects or elements of the, the industry? Will it be that self-governed, self-led businesses driving it forward? Or do you think it'll be regulation coming in and, and, and government driven? Yeah, no, I think it likely will be a combination of both. Um, looking at government legislation, government incentives, and then also companies recognising that this is actually something that they have as a corporate social responsibility, but also through customer demand. You know, this is what consumers are wanting to know. They're wanting to know about the green journey, um, with the provenance uh, of their products and, and the services that they are, are using. And so uh, I think it is something that we need to be leading on as an industry with the help and support of the government. Um, but ultimately, I think our, our consumers will be demanding quite a lot in that journey as well. So it's also meeting their expectation. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, about, about the change in consumer expectation. Is that something that we're seeing at the moment now? Absolutely, most definitely. Um, you know, even from from plastic straws uh, and the moves that we're seeing there, people want to know where their, their produce has come from, um, what plans we're using for efficiencies when it comes to energy and, and what we're doing to be more green. And, and that is absolutely something that we need to take into consideration for our businesses. But I... You know, what we also need to, to take into consideration is what are the business incentives that we can put forward for doing this as well? You know, because it can also make it, you know, really streamline our businesses at the same time. So we need to be making the case, the business case for doing this, as well as um, taking our consumers on that journey and promoting what we're doing. Because I think we, we are doing an awful lot behind the scenes, but perhaps we haven't shouted about it. Uh, as much as we could. And is there anything or any specific areas where you'd like to see more done or faster progress? Um, there, there is basically, I think that um, with the pandemic, it is a very difficult moment to be tackling these huge issues. They are really, really big and far reaching and with very long timelines as well. So when you're trying to stabilize your business, I think it is it is difficult to see the longer term goals when you're just trying to survive some in some instances, the end of the week uh, or the end of the month. So I think the challenge will be moving forward is how we can stabilize the sector, how we can stabilize our businesses, get them on a path to sustainable growth, whilst at the same time finding a way that we can keep an eye on these future goals. You know, that that's the immediate challenge that we have right now. And if we can find with the government key ways to incentivize um, or fund ways to help businesses on that green journey, then I think that that's going to help these businesses that have immediate business uh, critical issues that they're having to focus on in the here and now. The immediate future is ensuring that there is an industry, a strong industry, to be able to then adapt and change and, and move forward with. Um, absolutely. I mean, the Great British Pub is an institution um, and it's part of our culture. Uh, and our brewing prowess uh, is revered globally. And uh, we absolutely need to focus on stabilising 
um, our sector uh, for the future, but also looking ahead how we can actually use that reputation that we have and use that social value that we bring to deliver an awful lot in the future and maintain that um, that wonderful uh, offer that we have uh, for the consumer and for our tourists that come in, you know, that want to come in and, and feel part of that scene and taste those wonderful range of beers. So I really hope that that innovation throughout the crisis hasn't been knocked out and that we can still find a way to represent and reinvigorate the, the Great British Pub and our Great British Brewers. I hope so. I think it's one thing that's come across over the past uh, two series and speaking to, you know, we're getting on for 20, 30 different experts in different areas, not just in beer and brewing, is that that, that broad interest and love across the industry, is, it's, it's pretty deep, I think. Um, and it would be a real shame, wouldn't it, to, to have that dented. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm deeply passionate about uh, beer and pubs. Um, and I think it helps that I, I have a team of people at the BBPA uh, who feel exactly the same. And you give that extra bit uh, more just because you love it and you're so passionate about it. But it is definitely um, it's part of the fabric of our country and um, will be a lot poorer without it. So being able to find ways to, to strengthen that is, is enormously important and hopefully we'll all get back to enjoying it and it will be a way that we can reconnect with our communities as we all come through this pandemic and through a period of healing that I think we desperately need. Well, thinking along those lines then, um, for you, what's going to be different about going for a pint in 10 years' time? Um, what, what, what will have changed in our, in our beer and our pubs? This is a really difficult question because I hope everything <laughs> and nothing at the same time. Um, yeah. I think we absolutely will be focused on uh, being more sustainable um, and making sure that the journey, that we're greener in our processes, that our retail offer um, is improved, that we've sought for more innovative, more um, different flavours uh, in terms of the quality of our produce coming forward and we just get better and better and better. But it, as I say, in many ways, um, I hope that we still provide what we do today. And that is, you know, as you say, that classic tradition of going to the pub and having a fantastic pint um, and enjoying that conviviality in the same way that we have done for, for generations. Um, so hopefully um, we'll be able to just keep bringing each new generation of consumers with us on that journey. And I think that that's why we need to keep innovating. It's why we need to keep refreshing our offer, even though we, we really always need to respect uh, the heritage of our craft. Lovely. Thank you, Emma. No problem. A big thank you to Emma for her time and thoughts there. It's clear that as we hopefully move beyond the past 18 months, there's a lot of support needed to help those breweries and pubs most affected. The first thing that stood out for me there was the notion that moving forward and shifting to a sustainable model is going to need to be considered across the industry at all levels of supply and production. What I really liked though was what Emma said about where things could be in 10 years time, and that idea that we move forward to meet the energy, carbon and societal challenges over time, but without changing the beer or the brewing or the pubs, if at all possible. I hadn't really thought of it as moving forward to keep things the same, but it makes sense to me. Beer and pubs haven't really changed very much over the centuries. A few tweaks or refinements here and there, but overall, there's a reason why they're so popular. As a nation, many of us like the beer, we like the atmosphere, and we like how they serve as a social hub and focal point for our communities, just as they are. 
And this got me thinking about what the perfect pub experience would be like for me in 2031 and how I could define it. Now, not initially an easy task, so I've decided to take a lead from one of our great authors and made a quick jump back in history, 75 years in fact, to 1946 and to George Orwell's Moon Underwater. This is his short essay on what makes a perfect pub, and whilst the moon underwater may be a fictional establishment, through its characteristics he describes the qualities he most values in a pub. If you haven't read it, you can find it quite easily enough online, but it's an interesting snapshot of what makes a good pub in post-war London, and Orwell lists his ideal pub as having Victorian architecture, fires burning in the winter, different bars or spaces, so some with, some without games. There's no music allowed, so it's nice and calm and quiet. All of the middle-aged barmaids know most of their customers by name. You're able to buy basic supplies or use a phone if you need to. There may not be dinner, but there is a snack counter and lunch is available, which is served with draft stout. The staff are particular about their drinking vessels, always serving in ones with handles, and they've got a range of glass, pewter and china mugs to choose from. And there is a large garden, for a London pub at least, an aspect he particularly likes because it allows families to visit together. And as I start to think about making my list, it's Orwell's last point that immediately makes it onto mine. Families and friends come in all shapes and sizes, and a good pub makes them all welcome. Similar also to some of Orwell's other points, I really understand the value of calm and quiet in a pub, but I think I'd allow background music as long as it doesn't affect the conversation. And whilst I'm not particularly bothered about the staff knowing me personally or drinking out of a specific glass, both of these aspects suggest an awareness of customer service, of understanding what makes a welcoming atmosphere. So I'm including those points on the list too. Now, we'll finish my perfect pub off in a minute, but there's one really big thing for me that I need to add to the list, and it probably wasn't an issue for Orwell back in the 1940s. That is the sustainability of the beer sold or the pub it served in. I'm adding in this new criteria because my perfect pub is one that considers its social and environmental impact and makes it as positive as humanly possible. However, it's not always easy to know how you can act in a sustainable way, and if I'm honest, I'm not completely sure I know what that involves when it comes to beer and brewing. How does a brewer or a business make their activity sustainable? Well, if I don't know, then it's probably best to find someone who does, somebody who is an industry expert in understanding the sustainability of brewing and how to improve it. Dr. Nigel Davies is Director of Technical and Sustainability for Munton's Malting Company, and he runs his own sustainability consultancy called Malt Doctor. I jumped straight in and asked him where we stand on sustainability from his particular viewpoint. You know, I think we're probably 20 years behind uh, where we should be. Um, but on the other hand, I don't want that to come across as doom and gloom because I think there's a real drive to catch up now. Uh, if you look at some of the commentators, we've probably already gone past the point at which we can stop the average temperature going up by two degrees C. But maybe because of this drive to, to focus on carbon now, we're not so far behind that point at which we can recover, maybe by mid-century. So uh, you know, I'm, I'm aligned, I guess, with people like Greta Thunberg, who, who's talking about the fact that we're 20 years behind. She's right. Um, but as she said, you know, she wants action. I want action as well. So uh, it was interesting. You know, I was, I was described the other day as a silver bullet, being one of these strange older people that want to push sustainability <laughs> as much as Greta Thunberg. So I take that as a compliment. 
Yeah, yeah, well, definitely. So clearly there's no argument that emissions need to reduce and sustainability needs more effort and energy um, putting into it. But how do we know where to focus this and what needs to be done? Yeah, there are many models out there, aren't there, to calculate carbon footprint. Um, I think sometimes they, they create more confusion uh, than action. Uh, and I'm very much in that camp of trying to say to people, look, uh, don't over worry about which model to choose. Uh, you know, I find through my that sustainability consultancy at Malt Doctor that I probably spend over half of my time just explaining what the various carbon terms mean to people. Uh, and you can then sometimes see just that look of relief on people's faces when they say, oh, that's what it means. But the next bit is then, look, by the way, I don't want you to do a separate activity here. I just want to take the energy data that you probably got, the water data, and I'll show you simply how to convert that to carbon. And they said, what, simply? So yeah, really simply. Um, and then they can see that they don't have to do too much to calculate um, a footprint. But you know, I think that the thing is, choose one of the models. Choose one of the models that's out there and stick to it. Uh, that way you can benchmark where you are now and where you're going in the future. And I don't really have any time for people who want to argue with me whether I've made a 30% or a 31.5 or a 32% saving. Because probably the people that are worrying about that haven't even made any saving because they're worried about the numbers. So I think if you want to, want to act, choose a model and then benchmark it and stick with it. Otherwise, you'll find that uh, there are too many people out there that are trying to stifle the progress that you're able to make. What are those those key models then, or the ones that stand out for you as, as the most effective use of somebody's time in trying to evaluate this? Uh, I think it depends which part of the supply chain you're going for. You know, if you're looking at the raw materials, then there are things like Cool Farm Tool. Um, if you're looking at malt, there are a range of ones that cover malt. Um, I designed one uh, last year for Euromalt, the European malting industry. Um, but I think it's just important to choose one recognize what you're trying to do with it. So who are you trying to influence? That's the key thing. Are you trying to be operationally more effective? And that doesn't really matter which model you use to some extent because you'll see a step change. Uh, or are you trying to then find out where the hotspots are in your supply chain? So in which case you then need to find out, does this model allow me to calculate the raw material contribution, my own contribution? And then what happens when it's left my production facility? Now, it's that area which creates the most contention. Those parts are what they call scope three, if any of your listeners are wondering what that is. So scope scope one and two are the things that you do on your own production sites. Scope two is the electricity you use. Scope one is the gas you use. Uh, those sort of things. They're nice and easy. You get an invoice. Scope three is the things that happen outside of your factory. And that's the one where you need to be careful of your model. So it could be the raw material coming in if you're a malting company getting the barley in. And then if you're a brewer, it's what happens to the beer when it goes out. They're more complicated to do, but if you don't, uh, if you don't have the, the resource to go out and calculate that, and let's face it, most people don't, you can use a financial model to match the spend that you make in those areas, and it predicts what your carbon footprint would be. It's very easy to use, uh, and I've used it with lots of clients, and you, can, and you can sort of look on their faces and they say, wow, we thought this was going to cost us tens of thousands of pounds, and it hasn't. Um, is it the most perfect way of doing it? No. Because obviously, if you go out and measure something for real, you measure how much refrigeration energy you're using in the fridge in the pub. But frankly, how many people have got time to do that? Just use the financial model because you'll probably find it's only about three or four percent of your total footprint. And you don't have to be wonderfully accurate when it's down at that level. 
Whereas if you look down your supply chain at malting barley, which might be 60%, you've got to be really accurate and therefore you'd need a, a, a model, something like Cool Farm Tool or something like the Euromalt carbon calculator. But ultimately, any activity that any business in that supply chain is doing to reduce um, or improve their impact is a plus. So anything that simplifies that process, makes it clearer, is going to be a positive thing. Yes, I would just say act and don't worry about the details. You can you can check that later. <laughs> Do something. You know, I think too many people are sitting there thinking, what if what if somebody finds out that it, you know we were half a percent or one percent out here? It doesn't matter. Fact is, you can still talk about what you're doing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, thinking about then the average product, the pint, the can, or, or the bottle, when that's broken down, um, what does that look like from the perspective of carbon footprint? Well, around 40% of the uh, what's called the embedded carbon, the, the, the carbon which comes from other people that contribute to making that beer, about 40% is going to come from the raw materials. Um, if it's a can, about another 40% comes from the metal itself. If it's a bottle, the glass contributes just 13%. Hence, glass is the sustainable solution suddenly again, isn't it? Uh, brewing itself will contribute about 12% if it's in a can and about 25% if it's in a bottle. Looking um, sort of across the industry, I think you've touched on it a little bit before, but where are the areas that stand out as being a priority that, that can really help to, to reduce those emissions? Yeah, I think that's one of the things. If you, if you used a, a model, then you can actually find what I would call the hotspots here across the, the supply chain. Um, it generally will point to, to raw materials uh, and to packaging. But on the other hand, when you look at that, it diverts you, I think, diverts your attention maybe to those parts of the supply chain that you think are high. And what I find is that when you go and talk to them, they already know that they're pretty high and they're doing an awful lot to reduce uh, their greenhouse gas emissions anyway. So it tends to be a much more positive story. However, I've, what I found before is the minute you do one of these uh, hotspot maps and you start talking about where you think these hotspots are, People get very nervous and maybe don't want to talk to you. Uh, whereas what I found in, in reality is that once you go and talk to these supply chain members, it becomes a much more positive experience. So you, and we'll probably talk about a bit more about that as we go through the, the rest of the podcast. But uh, you, you can go from I, I've had people uh, saying they're going to boycott conferences I've spoken at because these things shouldn't be spoken of. And I've had people at the same conference then saying, can we do a press release with you? Because we think you're marketing, you're going to market our product perhaps better than we can because you, you can explain how it's used in the supply chain. So both extremes. And I can understand yeah. people why, why they get nervous if they think you're going to affect their product. But actually, it's not about that. It's about looking how we can jointly bring down emissions. And so does that tie back into um, the comment you made around awareness and understanding the process and that evaluation? Yeah. Um, it's just a, 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 a lack of it there, I suppose, and, and fear creeps in. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's uh, why perhaps uh, consultancies like I set up myself last year with, with Malt Doctor Limited, uh, I guess I was a bit surprised just how many people wanted to use it and, and why do they want to use it? It was because they it was a sort of hand-holding exercise, really, to just help them understand how they approach this and, and what if, what what if people got uh, a little bit nervous, a little bit uh, antagonistic towards them asking this for this information. But I've seen one company in particular, um, I saw go from not being able to calculate a carbon footprint to then calculating it the following year and being certified to two years later being listed on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. 
So that's wow. one heck of a journey, isn't it? But they saw, oh, the, they saw the value of it, I think, in, in terms of um, not only in terms of the way the business operated, you know, in terms of their staff, but also in who they're going to be selling to and, of course, in their share price. Mm. Well, I guess this is a huge opportunity as well. There, there, some are viewing this as a potentially a risk or a threat, but there is huge value, I'm guessing, to be gained in, in really pushing ahead and adopting new, new ways of, of, of brewing. I think so. If you look at uh, setting an externally verified target, something like a science-based target, which is one where somebody's looked at the different industries across the world and said, okay, how much do these industries need to reduce? If we're, if, and if we all do that, we will definitely be able to control the impact that humans have on the climate. So that's a science-based target. And if you look at the, there are something like 1,200 companies at the moment have said, that's a good idea. Only around five to 600 of them have actually set a target to say they will reduce in line with that. But those companies that have set a target are showing figures like 55% of the chief execs in those companies will say that it's increased uh, their market share. 35% of them will say that it's, uh, it's improved their resilience to the ever-increasing pressures from legislation. So it's, a, it's great. It's maybe a bit scary to set some of these targets, but actually it will generate you uh, new business or retain business that you've currently got. So what happens if um, a business uh, doesn't set its own targets? What's, what's happening to them in the next few years and how are they going to have to move or change? Well, I think if you just look at the UK situation, they're, they're, it's now law. I think some people still don't realise that it's law that we're going to have to be uh, carbon zero. People still don't really get some of these terms. So carbon zero, carbon neutral. Carbon zero is really hard. That means you don't emit any any emissions. That's going to be pretty difficult for most people. Carbon neutral, I get, because it means that you're trying to balance by doing some good things against some of the, the less good things that you do. Mm-hmm. However, again, that drives the people towards offsetting. I'm really not a fan of offsetting uh, because some companies now, you see lots of companies out there claiming that they're carbon neutral. What that means is they bought somebody else's good practice and they're balancing their own. Uh, I don't like that. I prefer the new phrase, which is out there, which is climate positive. So you're doing something yourself, which is positive for the environment. I really like that phrase. I think we might need to offset eventually. But actually, some of the some of the practices that some of the better companies have put in place are showing that you can certainly decarbonize by 60 percent plus. So the, you know, the targets the UK government have set, I don't think are that scary, especially when you consider the electricity um, supply companies are saying that they'll be carbon uh, neutral or carbon zero by 2035. And the heat industries are saying that they can decarbonize by 64% now. So those are big figures. And I don't think we need to be too scared of them. But on the other hand, I think we don't want to choose offsetting as our first point of call. So it's about, I guess, from my interpretation of what you said there, taking that step back and looking at the, the net impact to the wider climate, not just your business and, and what the numbers say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's uh, it's a really good model. If you look at the uh, people profit planet model, the so-called triple bottom line, you can get this triple benefit for your business by focusing on the environment. So yes, it is environment. Yes, it is greenhouse gas emissions. But although some of the the paybacks for some of these green technologies may be a little bit longer. Maybe they're six years, not three years. Uh, and maybe you need the board to to change its mindset a little bit to look long term for sustainability. But my goodness, if you do those two, if you do the profit and you do the planet, the people are really enthused. 
And that's your people on site. It's your investors. It's the supply chain generally. Uh, and certainly companies that have got such a, an open stance on sustainability, they will all tell you that when people come to work with them, guess what they're saying? We want to work with you because we love the way you don't just talk about sustainability, but you've got a real uh, roadmap and you're well along that roadmap already to being as carbon or climate positive as you possibly can be. Well, thinking about some of those examples, um, and I appreciate your area is, is, is malting and, and, and mm-hmm. barley. So looking at that, that part of the industry, what examples are there where those activities really are looking like they're on track? You know, I think it's a really exciting part because if you look at fertilizer manufacturers, uh, they've already reduced parts of their process emissions by 90%. Wow. It's incredible. And yet I don't know how many people know this, but, you know, companies like Yara, I think they, they deserve a pat on the back. They, uh, the nitrogen fertilizer they produce today is around 40 to 50% less intense than it was 15 years ago and is quite likely to be carbon zero very soon. That's something to celebrate. That's quite a turnaround, isn't it? Yeah, and if, then, then if you look at the farmers, so that's the, that's, that's the fertilizer. If you look at the farmers, there's a real possibility. In fact, it's a little bit more than a possibility because I know that this is true now. The malting barley will not just be carbon neutral. It's going to be carbon negative. Now, some people are saying that might be possible by 2045. I know for a fact, I can't tell you who it is yet. It's a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a trade secret. But there are farmers out there who can prove now uh, that their barley is carbon negative. That's really something to celebrate. Well, that's huge. The idea that within existing traditional practices, there's actual carbon sinks being created and drawing that in. That's a huge step forward. Well, it is. And if you think about it, uh, whilst I've said I don't like offsetting, and I don't, there will be a need for some offsetting. But if you're going to offset anywhere, why not do it in your own supply chain? So why not buy carbon credits from the barley that's got into your beer? I think that's a much better story. Yeah, and then have a, have a neutral industry as a whole. Yep. That's a lovely circular way of looking at it, isn't it? Well, are there areas, though, that still need or more focus or more attention that stand out? Yes, I think one of the biggest changes we're likely to see in going towards climate positive is that uh, we're going to need to switch fuels. Um, it will have a major impact on operational greenhouse gas emissions. But if you look at the polls, when, when people uh, go out and ask industry about uh, their view of this, only around half of the supply chain is considering things like hydrogen uh, specifically. <clears throat> and indeed, only half of, have a carbon neutral or climate positive commitment, which is that latest variation on this word. Now, my take on this is that there's lots of existing technology right now that can move us towards greenhouse gas reduction. Uh, you've got examples of, of, of companies in the malting industry, like Muntins installing an anaerobic digestion system to cope with brewery and malting waste, generating 14 to 16% of site electricity uh, and making a fertilizer that farmers are almost falling over themselves to use uh, and reducing road movements by 3,000 tankers a year. Um, Another one is introduction of biomass from the UK where that wood chip has got no other productive use. And yet if you use it uh, to make the heat for kilning, you can deliver the same heat with 90% less greenhouse gas emissions. so I think that you know there's a, there's a lot of inactivity in there, perhaps because people are still wondering if there's going to be this wonderful new technology. And my, I keep banging this drum to say, yes, there we do need some new technology, but actually there's a lot that we've got now that we should be using. And does that fit in with, as, as businesses, brewers, malting houses, whatever it may be, when they're looking ahead and they're planning at the equipment that they have, 
if that new technology is still coming, it's on the horizon. There's still plenty of scope to build these existing improved technologies into what you're doing for the next five years, perhaps. I think that's very true. And even if you, you look at the biomass, uh, one that I just described there, that, OK, we might run biomass on wood chip now, but in 20 years time, I'll be surprised if we aren't running those same heaters on, on hydrogen. Um, maybe that hydrogen is generated on site. And I think this is very much where we need to look at. You need to look at a suite of alternatives to get to this carbon reduction, not just one. Um, so, yes, I'm very pleased that I've got a, I've got a Tesla car and I, I, I feel that my emissions are, uh, are great when I'm traveling around the country. But not everyone, you know, we, if everyone has an electric car, where are we going to get that electricity from? Even if the electricity is generated with hydrogen, uh, you know, our infrastructure is, is quite difficult to, to move green energy around the country. <clears throat> so I think if you look at if you look at companies like Amazon, for example, <clears throat> so Amazon have said that uh, it's just not possible to have the power into to recharge some of their large fleet. They would be down uh, waiting to be charged for too long. They wouldn't be productive. Uh, and some of the power stops would be pretty amazing to you know, trying to do some of those things. So what have they decided to do? They've said, well, we'll go hydrogen for our large fleet and we'll use all of our other fleet will be electric. So you've got some and some. And I think that's a really good example. However, if you look at, let's go back to my Tesla. I'm harping on about it a little bit, but my Tesla gets, gives me 300 miles uh, at the moment on my electric battery. There is technology already out there. We're using a thing called an aluminium air battery, which the military have got which would simply be a plug and play uh, technology. So I could drive up to my uh, my local filling station. So rather than being out of business, they're now selling aluminum air batteries, for example. I could, uh, in the future, I, I see the possibility of just unplugging my battery from my car, not waiting to be recharged, put the aluminum air battery in. The battery isn't recharged, it's aluminum, it's fully recyclable. So it's a really good solution. And guess what? I'd get 1500 miles out of my Tesla on the latest figures. Wow. Well, thinking about, say, uh, a small brewery or small brewer um, um, and their position where they haven't considered the carbon impact of their activities yet, you know, beyond maybe uh, common sense, saving money, cost reduction here and there, um, but they want to. What are the most effective things that they can start off with that they can consider to bring about change? The, the prime one is going to be energy. So I think they would need to measure energy. And when I say measure energy, you're just taking the uh, the meter reading that you've got. You've got an invoice. <clears throat> you don't need to be any more complicated than that. Just have a look if it varies batch to batch. So if you're making the same batch of beer day in, day out, you know, have a look at it and say, well, why was the energy particularly good that day? Why was it bad that day? And then try and translate all of your good days into your into your norm. Uh, and I think that's not as difficult as some people would, would uh, have you believe. You just have to go onto the government website to find a conversion factor for carbon. They, they change them every year. So if you, if you, put, <clears throat> if you put greenhouse gas conversion figures, uh, UK government, you'll find it. It's as easy as that, you know, it, it, on, on Google. I think as well, I would have to say they, they'd want to source their raw materials from a supplier who can prove they have the lowest carbon footprint possible. Um, I know that that's becoming a focus of quite a few brewers, not just the, the small brewers. You know, in fact, I think sometimes I get the question more from small brewers than I do from some of the bigger guys. Yeah, yeah. I think they're they're more interested in this, perhaps because they 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 want to have it as a USP that they are really sustainable. I think sometimes they looked in the wrong area, so I, they sometimes they put too much emphasis on organic production. Now, organic, I know is. People like organic, um, although if you look at, uh, people will tell you that they like organic and all of the polls I've seen say that about 70% uh, will tell you they love organic, 
but it only translates into about 17% of the time a buying decision to actually choose the organic product, but whatever. But organic, again, can be good for the soil initially because you're thinking it's no pesticides, no fertilizers. However, if you go past about five years, because of the microbes that have been generated in the soil, they are now generating more CO2 than they're saving. So you have to be a bit careful uh, what, you're, what you're doing there. But certainly distilleries, small craft distilleries and craft brewers, I think are the most interested in this area. I get probably at least two inquiries from that sector every week. Uh, on this you know we're thinking about saying this what can we say and then obviously yeah. there's other things it's not just carbon is it you want to look to save as much water as possible and recycle wherever you can do you think that that interest from the, the, the smaller um, operations is that is that partly due to their proximity to their customer i think so but i think also they're looking for a usp and uh, you know i think the, the the craft brewers the craft distillers uh, the word the fact it's got craft in it perhaps suggests that you know you, you're a bit more hands-on and uh, uh, I guess they'd want to sell the fact that you know m- margins are, are, are tough I mean if you look at what's happened with the the, the craft brewing sector 75 percent of them have had a, a much tougher time uh, than any other sector you know a lot of them have really had to pull back stop production that's pretty awful but they're coming out now and you know the green recovery I, I, I can see in there well, you mentioned then around that, uh, so that recovery, that green recovery. What do you think brewing beer and pubs will look like or how they'll be different in, say, 10 years' time? You know, I wish I, I wish my crystal ball was, uh, was really <laughs> accurate. Um, you know, I, I think the first thing I want to say, I hope they're back to a prosperous trade after the horrors that they've seen due to COVID. Uh, they've had a really tough time. And, uh, you know, we, we haven't got violins playing in the background. It's the entertainment section sector generally they've had a really tough time the breweries the bigger breweries could switch to canned production i think they've learned how to be flexible to get the beer uh, out into the supply chain but people like going to the pub don't they why why shouldn't they that's that social side of it you know i think that we are going to see changes in pubs because people will start looking at these so-called scope three ones so how much energy is the refrigeration using um and things like that. But, you know, I don't think the customer's going to be that interested in that. They, they, what they'll want is to be able to go to the pub and have that pint that they've maybe had for all of their lives, maybe since their first one they had when they were 18. They enjoy the heritage of it. They enjoy the taste of it. So whilst there is a trend, I know, in some uh, brewing sectors to look at their raw materials and say, you know, we can become less carbon intense if we take some of those raw materials out. I don't think they need to do that. And I think it would be a shame if they if they did that. So I think if you go back through your supply chain and you say to your suppliers, how can you, you take 10% out or 20% out or more of the ingredients you're selling to me? If they do that, you can keep to the same recipe. You can keep the same heritage of your product. The consumer may like stories that you tell them around that. But the first thing they're going to do is taste the product and they will enjoy that. And if you can tell them that you've done all these things in the background that's making their lovely tasting beer more sustainable than it was 10 years ago. I think that's a much better story than trying to persuade them and twist their arms and say, oh, we've changed the raw ingredients. I know it doesn't quite taste as good as it was, but, you know, it's sustainable. That's not going to work, is it? (laughs) No. So keeping that user experience that we all have grown up with as close as we can, exactly the same as, as as it always has been, but just removing behind the scenes, everything we don't want to be in that process. 
I think that's right. You know, and I wouldn't, I, I just, I think at this point, I wouldn't knock anybody that makes a sustainable product. I've tasted beers that have been made uh, with much less energy uh, using barley. They'll have their place, uh, but they don't quite match the flavor that you have if you make it with you know, good quality hops and good quality malt. But I'll never knock someone who makes a new product like that. It's, it's the wrong thing to do. It will find its market. And if people want to buy a, a, a product because it's sustainable and, and not so influenced by the taste, well, good luck to them. That's that's their choice, and, and they're entitled to that choice, and I'd never stop them having it. But I like a beer which has got a really strong malt flavor in it, good hops, and one which has been made uh, in, in a way which is perhaps the same as way it's been made, but more efficiently than it was made maybe 100 years ago. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that one. And certainly more efficiently than I've made any beer in this project so far, I think. <laughs> well, so. I wish I could have tried some of that beer because I love, I really love the story that, that you tried to generate with that. And, uh, you know, why, why not? Why not? It's a good thing to... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I can give you many reasons after this, why not? Um, but <laughs> leave it to the professionals. But, well, you know, in that case, I suppose it's, it's fingers crossed, isn't it, that by 2031, maybe we could catch up for a pint and look back and see the amount of progress that has actually taken place. Well, that would be good, wouldn't it? Thank you to Nigel for sharing his experience. I love that principle, that whilst there are measurable, focused ways to review and reduce emissions or impact, any positive change should be viewed as a step in the right direction and as a way to get started. I mean, the reality is stark, I think, but it's encouraging to see what is happening. And I also love that phrase, climate positive, not just viewing activities in terms of their carbon calculation and trying to reduce or offset, but stepping back and looking at the wider impact of our actions, trying not to just balance the emissions numbers, but work toward leaving the environment in equal or better shape after we've factored in all of our ingredients, processes and products. So that has given me a really nice focus for the sustainability of my pub. All of the beer, food and drinks are considered along their journeys or supply chains, and each of them is using energy, transporting, heating, storing and dealing with waste in a positive way. I know that this probably means that it won't be a cheap pub, but I've long believed that whilst we've enjoyed generally low food prices in the UK, it does come with another cost. If we're paying low food or drink prices, it's a good chance that saving is being made at the expense of non-renewable natural resources, habitat loss, or potentially through cheap labour. British-grown or sustainably imported ingredients, renewable energy, material reuse, and well-supported employees are all amongst the things that I would happily pay more for in a pint. So that is on the list. As Emma and Nigel said, we want to keep all the good things about beer, but work to remove those negatives. Quality British brewing, including all those wonderful malt, hop, and yeast flavours in a range of styles, but also sustainable. Of course, that could come in many ways. Major multinational breweries can make changes that have a big effect, while smaller brewers can also play a big role in the long-term viability and support of their communities and economies. So what does a sustainable brewery look like, and what impact can they have? I'd like to find out, and luckily, there are now quite a few that really are focusing on how they set up or brew, and it brings us on to my final conversation of the series, I think. This time, with a small brewery that got going in London a few short years ago. My name is Felix, and I am co-founder here at Small Beer Bruco. Um, we're a brewery based in South London, in Bermondsey. Um, and we, we specialize in brewing beer below 2.8% ABV. So we specialize in, in small beer, 
which is um, which is a historical term, but but we've we've borrowed that term um, uh, to to relate to what we do in the present day. So, thinking back to when you started Small Beer, how big a factor were the environmental and the social considerations for you? Absolutely. So, so when we first started. Um, we realised that we had a we had a big journey ahead of us, and and we we also had a, a brand to build. And really, the key was that we needed to convince people not that we were making uh, sustainably brewed beer, but but that small beer in itself was a good thing altogether. And so, what we realised was what we don't want to be doing is plugging the fact that we're a green brewery. Um, it's not a it's not a, a big part of what we talk about. However, from day one, James and I, as as co-founders, were absolutely um, insistent, adamant on the fact that we would build a sustainable brewery. And the reason for this is really that we both um, have worked within the drinks industry our entire careers. Um, James has very much been in wine and spirits, um, uh, and and I had been in the brewing industry, and then we actually met working at Sipsmith Gin Distillery. Um, but we had both seen huge amounts of wastage throughout the industry, um, and and one of those things in particular was water. Uh, we had seen um, in the brewing industry the the water ratios that people use. So effectively, um, how much water you need in brew, in in order to brew a pint of beer. Um, if you just look at the brewery alone, we were looking at the, your average brewery was using eight to 10 pints of water to make a single pint of beer. And we just couldn't believe that that was the case. I mean, if you think, you know, if you're brewing on a, on a 30 barrel plant as we are at the moment, so, so our brewery uh, effectively turns out 5,000 litres of beer uh, in a single brew. If you think you'd be throwing away 50,000 litres of water. That's a huge amount, or 45,000 litres of water with the other 5,000 ending up in the beer. That's a huge amount of water to throw away. And we just said, look, this is, this is ridiculous. We have to be able to do better than this. And so we started out a water audit. And when we designed the brewing kit, we designed it specifically for two reasons, really. One was to make the very best tasting small beer that we could. Um, and the other reason uh, was to conserve water um, and energy. And so we operate slightly differently than, than most breweries in that regard. Um, we don't have a cold liquor tank, um, which is where you would store vast amounts of cold water. Um, we also don't have a hot liquor tank. We don't have a continuous supply of hot water. Uh, liquor being the brewing term for, for water for, those, for, for your listeners. But the... Um, what we do have is, is we have these multi-purpose vessels, uh, which we use to heat water and we also use to, um, to boil wort. Um, and so effectively we have these kettles, but we only ever heat up the exact amount of water required for that brew. And so that restricts us. We have these restrictions that we have in place, one of which is that we only have that amount of water. So there's no way that we can use any more. And the other thing that restricts us is the fact that we also have a dry floor policy. And so what that means is that we don't spill any water on the floor. So usually in a brewery, you would walk in and you would see a, a, a standard brewer's garb would be um, wellies, wet weather yeah. gear, squeegee in one hand, a hose in the other. 
and brewers are continuously hosing down the floor um, in pursuit of this, what I think is, is, is sort of false hygiene, um, because there is this perceived wisdom that if you wash down the floor continuously and you apply chemicals, then that will kill um, any bugs and, and, and therefore prevent you from contaminating your, your beer. As it happens, the, the bugs that like to live in beer like to live in warm, wet places. And so having a nice warm brewery with a wet floor uh, is uh, the, the ideal conditions, particularly when you have malt dust. Uh, so, so when you have your malted barley and you've, and you've milled the malted barley, there will be a certain amount of, of barley flour effectively uh, floating around in the air. And you have all these micro mashes continu uh, continuing uh, throughout the air. And so, so breweries quite often end up with serious mold problems. You know, you can get very damp environments with, uh, with mold growing uh, on the floors and walls. Um, and hygienically, it's just absolutely terrible. So we said, why can't we just have a completely dry brewery and also will prevent us from, from using water? And so, we, uh, so I designed all the brewing kit and I designed it specifically so that all um, processes, if we had any, any waste material, we would be separating liquids and solids to be treated separately um, because uh, that's a, another fallacy within the within the brewing industry is that uh, brewers quite often will be washing solids down the drain which is terrible for effluent uh, so from an environmental perspective one of the one of the highest impacts that breweries have is that they are flushing solids uh, so um, spent grain spent hops spent yeast down the drain um, where they provide a huge demand on the effluent system and these are things that i'd seen within bigger breweries um, and uh, so I've, in my career, I've worked for Budweiser, um, now part of AB InBev. Um, and then I've also worked at Fuller's Brewery in Chiswick. Um, and, and on those sorts of scales, you see the impacts of, uh, of, of, of these environmental practices. And really, um, we just said, we can't really live with the thought of, of water uh, going down the drain particularly if it's hot water, which is quite often the, um, the wasted water within breweries will quite often be hot. If you're cooling down your wort after boiling, um, usually you will have an excess of hot water, which, which ends up filling up your hot liquor tank and eventually just rolling over the side and into the drain. Now, we do capture the heat from our boil. So we, we capture... Uh, that into the exact amount of hot water that we're going to use for the following day. Any excess heat uh, is then pumped into the air. So we use that heat to, to heat the brewery, um, which is we also use the brewery as, as an event space, uh, a wedding venue, and we hold um, uh, live music events here two or three nights a week under normal circumstances. But we need that, you know, we would otherwise be, uh, be heating the brewery uh, using, using other means. So, so we can actually use that, that excess heat energy to, to heat the, the space. Um, and then it means that we don't end up with excess water. Um, we really focused on that as, as an absolute key to, uh, to building the brewery. Um, and what that meant was actually later, later on down the line, so these were, these were just conditions of running a brewery for us. It wasn't, we didn't want to run an ethically 
green brewery or a you know or an environmental or or a community brewery that wasn't the point the point was we were going to make great tasting small beer but we didn't see it as an option we had to do it in in the most sustainable way possible and then when we then went on to to gain certification and to gain recognition of these practices it was so much easier because all of that was just baked in to the to the brewery from day one so if you're, you're starting off from a perspective then that it's it's zero waste any any waste be it energy or materials is not acceptable in the process um absolutely and that, and that that extends actually to that extends beyond uh the brewery that also goes into our packaging materials so everything from boxes to labels to business cards everything is 100 recycled um and so and we you know, we continuously look at life cycle analyses in every, for every material that we're using, because sometimes processes will change as well, you know, um, uh, but, but we we're also continually putting pressure on our suppliers in order to supply uh, recycled materials and, and, and green alternatives to their, to their existing ones. Um, and amazingly, uh, so many suppliers will come back to us and say, yeah, well, we could do that, but it's going to cost you a hell of a lot more money. And you say, look, if we're not the first people to do it, then no one's going to do it. And if we do it now, yes, sure, it might cost us a little bit extra. But then if we if we demand these recycled materials, you can then supply those to your other customers. And eventually it's going to get cheaper and cheaper. And so, so we're we're also acting as a bit of a, a, a stall, you know, a, a sort of, um, uh, we're, we're starting off that process in the industry and we're trying to get as many like-minded breweries to take part. So you've mentioned the, a lot of the activities there that you can control within the brewery and you touched upon your suppliers. What have you been able to do or are you planning to do with those activities, be it the ingredients and everything that happens before it gets to the brewery? And then also you sort of touched upon the packaging and everything that happens out of it how much influence can you have the the packaging materials were always a big focus from day one we knew that that was where we could have a lot of influence um and actually more recently we have been focusing on the raw materials for brewing um from day one we have used uh all of our malted barley in fact has all come from warminster maltings um uh, based in wiltshire and they are the they're the oldest um, floor maltings and, and, and the only exclusive floor maltings in the country. Um, but, uh, but all of our, all of our barley, all, all of the, 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 the malted grains um, that we purchase are all grown in the UK. Um, and the, the really big push that we have, uh, the, that we've managed to get through um, just in the past year is we've developed a new beer um, it's an IPA and it's a, it's a British IPA. Uh, and in order to, when we, when we set out on this project, we said, we're going to push the boundaries one step further. We're going to uh, certify the brewery as organic under the Soil Association standards. Um, and we're also going to source all of the materials, including the hops for this beer, uh, from the UK. And so we went out and realized, actually, that there is a very, very short supply of all British, all organic hops. Um, and we secured all of the available hops on the market. So we have bought, um, for 2021, we've bought 
all available British organic hops. Um, and what we've also done is we have um, encouraged farmers and successfully encouraged farmers to, um, to put more hops in the ground uh, for the 2022 harvest, um, which we just didn't really think was even possible, you know, for, for, for a brewery of our scale to be influencing um, what farmers are, are putting in the ground for next year, we just thought was phenomenal. So that's one of the certifications that we hold is the, is the Soil Association certification. Um, the other one that we hold applies to the whole, to the whole business, um, again, which is uh, the B Corp certification. Mm, yeah, I was going to ask uh, about that. And we are the, uh, we're the first London brewery to gain B Corp certification and, and in fact, one of the first breweries uh, in the UK as a whole to, to gain um, B Corp certification. Um, but B Corp is a, uh, it's a standard. It's not just an environmental standard. Um, it's also an ethical standard. Um, and, and it really shows that we're doing business for good. And so it means that we are, uh, we're focusing on our community. We're focusing on our staff. Um, and we're focusing on the environment. So, so we're effectively, you know, it's a, it's a huge checklist. In fact, it's, it took us um, nine months to get through B Corp certification. Um, and that was quick. Uh, that, was a, that was flying through because, as I say, we already had a lot of these processes in place. Um, but it, it's, it's something that continues to, to drive us forward as a business. Um, and, and we're continuously improving on, on what we do. Well, when you look across the industry, then, where are the, the key challenges as you see them um, when it comes to reducing impact uh, or impact on the environment? So I've spoken about what we do here, and I think our biggest um, opportunity, really, um, uh, rather than threat uh, within the industry, is to be at the forefront of this movement and to put these processes in place and then to get others to join that journey with us. I mentioned cost, um, and certainly if, if you're doing green things, they can start out expensive. The more people that are doing them, uh, the, uh, the more cost-effective they get, but also the greener they get. You know, If you get lots and lots of people all moving towards a, a particular um, a type of material to the point where the recycling of that material gets more efficient, um, the use of that material gets more efficient, and, and consumers begin to accept that material more, um, then everything flows smoother. Um, if you're the only person uh, using, uh, using cardboard holders to hold your bottles together, uh, as we do, um, then, uh, then sometimes that can be a tough, you know, to be that, the first person in the yeah. industry to be doing that can be tough. Uh, and, it, and it isn't necessarily accepted by by, by consumers and they don't know how to recycle them. So this is, you know, it's something that we we really, um, we, we just want to spread the word far and wide and get as many people on board with us as possible. I think that's probably the, the biggest potential, the biggest opportunity for us is to move in that direction. So looking ahead then, if we jump forward to 2031, what does, does the future hold for British Beer and Brewing? And what does it look like in 10 years time? Wow. I mean, 10 years is a long time. It feels a lot longer now, uh, doesn't it, in, if, in the last couple of years? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, in, in any industry, but certainly in, in brewing, I mean, we have uh, as, as an agenda um, 
as an entire nation and, and or, uh, as a uh, as a planet, um, we we must be working towards a, a green agenda and 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 a carbon a net uh, net zero um, carbon world. And and so, brewing practices I think will have to change with you know with the rest of industry and whether that is forced upon the brewing um, industry or whether that comes from within. Um, I couldn't tell you, I don't have a crystal ball, but I certainly hope that brewers are, um, are really feeling the, the need to do that themselves. And, and I, I also hope, you know, as consumers, um, we should all be pushing on, on, on breweries and, and um, other suppliers to, to really do the very best that they can. You can all vote with your wallets, right? Don't buy plastic packaging. Don't buy single-use plastic packaging. I personally am not a huge fan of cans. Um, I I don't buy cans, and I and we also um, uh, we really you know we 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 get as much of our beer into into bottles as possible. Now, I mean, the can industry is constantly plugging uh, their metal recycles forever slogan. Uh, it's a very clever one. Um, but unfortunately, uh, and, and there's a big debate going on on whether glass bottles uh, or cans are better. Our glass bottles um, are not only very lightweight, uh, but they also have the proportions. So uh, being in a stubby bottle, it means that we get 40% more beer onto a pallet as you would do if, if you were in a long neck bottle. Mm-hmm. And that's simply because you lose so much um, space on that pallet in that longer neck Um so we know for a fact that our bottles are greener than, than cans. Um, we do actually have to fill a small amount of cans uh, with our beer to, to take it to festivals where you just have health and safety glass policies. There, has, there have to be certain balances. As I said, everything has to be fit for purpose. And I, I genuinely believe that there will have to be uh, a, a better understanding, whether that comes from the consumer um, or the government, or the or, or, or the brewers themselves, we need to to unwrap some of these um, some of these myths that you know that one thing is is greener than another. Um, it is it's there's a lot of greenwash out there, uh, and and seeing through it all is sometimes quite a bit harder than than uh, than you initially think. Okay. Um, particularly when some people are, are moving in the opposite direction, trying to convince you of, of, of one particular thing because it works for them. So as well as having um, obviously people who are researching and developing that, that knowledge and the expertise in the best way forward, an element of independent review so that, that, that there isn't any kind of pressure from an economic or, or business interest that's influencing that, that, that information and communication. Absolutely. Um, and that's, that's a tough one because, you know, who, who's going to do that work? Um, I know, uh, for one, that we are, you know, we are moving towards a, um, a return scheme in the UK. Uh, and, and hopefully that brings with it some good things. Um, initially, that, that's just going to be a deposit return scheme to try and get as many bottles and cans back into, um, into recycling facilities as possible. Um, but but you you know you look at the likes of Denmark and Germany where they have very sophisticated uh, return schemes for, for for actually returning returnable bottles back to uh, to their 
um, to, to the originators, to the, to the manufacturers um, or the breweries, um, you know, potentially we might be working towards that sort of model. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are, yeah, I, I, I think that we have a huge amount to learn and a huge amount to see. I think we're just at the very, very beginning of all of this. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a big green future for brewing. Yeah. And what does small beer look like in 10 years? <laughs> well, I mean, as I said, we, we're really keen to, to be as accessible as possible. Um, uh, effectively, um, we, you know, for, for want of a better word, global domination, I think is on the curve. <laughs> <laughs> we, we really, we, we think that the best um, option for everyone out there is to have the opportunity to drink small beer. So when you're considering drinking beer, you might be considering a four or 5% beer. You might be considering a non-alcoholic beer. Both of those options are fine, but we think that there needs to be an option for, for small beer in there as well. Um, and whether that's us or whether that's us paving the way for other breweries to brew, uh, beer in, in the same bracket, um, we think that that, that is, that's, that's absolutely the way forward. Um, and so we will continue to, to spread the word about small beer. Uh, obviously, you know, the UK is our, is our heartland and we, we will continue to, to grow uh, within the UK. But, um, but really, we're, you know, we're, we're also looking to, to get the beer out into other markets as well. Um, thank you very much, Felix, um, for, your, for your time today. I appreciate it. It's probably squeezing in amongst other things. So it's much appreciated. Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I'm very grateful to Felix, as I am for all the experts that have shared their time, and it's really interesting to hear how the guys at Small Beer have approached their setup, their brewing activities, and how they continue to review and improve over time. Something that stood out for me after that chat was just how much work Felix and James do to understand and evaluate their impact so they can make those changes, and how much they would appreciate standardisation of that evaluation and research. It strikes me that independent facts and figures that really help brewers, farmers, pubs, everyone really, to go with the most sustainable options would help those that may find it harder to do that review and really start making a change. I'm sure almost all breweries are taking positive steps now. I mean, especially as there's usually a financial benefit as well. But it was great to see the approach that small beer have taken. Designing the brewery around minimising water usage and energy reuse, whilst also reducing packaging materials is something I can definitely get behind and it has earned them a spot on my ideal pub as the low ABV option. It also means that in my ideal pub, there is also a national scheme that lets my drinkers know the impact of their choices. No greenwash or obnoxious marketing allowed, just universally supported facts that help them consider which beer they want, not just based on flavour, brand or price, but also the importance they place on sustainability. And, as we're back to the pub, we've now covered off the welcoming, inclusive atmosphere, the socially and environmentally responsible running, knowledgeable and friendly staff, and top-notch sustainable beer. I'm going to keep Orwell's points on architecture and character too. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean it's an old building, but it has to have personality and make good use of the space. And, I know this may divide people, but there's no sports or TV. The older I get, the less I find myself watching sport or TV in general. So for me at least, my ideal pub is all about the people that visit and the interactions within. And that leaves just one slightly selfish thing on the list. It's only a two minute walk to my house. 
I'm sure there are probably more things that make the perfect power band. I know that this is just my view, but I think this covers off the big things for my moon underwater. You know, I really, really hope that by the time we get to that pint in 2031, that I've not just found my personal dream pub, but that the industry has gone above and beyond the targets set by government, that we've collectively recognised where to push ahead, where to make positive change. To be able to enjoy a pint that I know has had at worst a neutral impact on the world we live in would be genuinely wonderful. But, if I'm honest, I don't think it's going to come from our current government and its policies. It's going to come from you and me voting with our wallets, from businesses up and down the supply chain recognising the importance and value in taking a climate positive position and the stark reality of irreparable climate change kicking in and screwing up a lot of what we take for granted to show us why this action is critical. I think if there's something to take away from the past few years of growing beer, it's that you can make your own beer entirely by yourself. So if things were to get really bad, you are very welcome to join me for a hyper-local, homemade, post-apocalyptic pint. But I think we would all much rather do it in the moon underwater instead. We just need to drive forward that positive change and encourage the people we buy our beer from to do the same. And you know what? That seems like a good place to finish, I think. A positive action to take forward after two series, 17 episodes, 19 guests, two brews and an awful lot of faffing, experimenting, chatting, isolating, brewing and learning. It has been a lot of fun for me and you should reward yourself for making it all the way through with a pint of something special. Thank you for listening. Look after yourself. Cheers. Cheers.